0: Thank you, Wayne, and thank you, Darlene. You know, when you look at the world and you see the problems, you wonder where to start. You start with the person in front of you. You try to love them. You try to encourage them. That's where ministry begins, the people closest to us. In two weeks, we're going to celebrate communion here. It will be Easter weekend. We're going to have communion on Friday night. We'll also have a healing service that night. And we have heard of many people who have found healing as a result of participating with us at our communion service healing prayers. And I mention that to you because in the rotation we have of the eight things we're praying for for the church, this week it is regarding health. So we're gonna pray for healing today. And when we pray for healing, we're thinking in the context of four areas. We think of physical healing, we think of spiritual healing, we think of emotional healing, and we think of relationship healing. And those of you who are able, I invite you to kneel with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we who live in this world are constantly accosted with suffering. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's people we don't know, sometimes it is people very close to us. And we long for the day when there will be no more pain nor sorrow. But in the meanwhile, Lord, we need you and we call upon you and we plead for you to bring healing. We think of people that need healing in the area of their physical being. We present them to you at this time. Lord, we know some are suffering emotionally. They need healing. We present them to you at this time. And we know of people who are struggling with their faith. They need spiritual healing, Lord. And we pray for these folks. Father, we think of people who are in relationships, and those relationships are strained. Home may be breaking up. We pray for healing. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we open Your Word, You will speak to us words of hope comfort and healing, and that you would be the one who teaches us, and that our hearts would be changed because of you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Moving forward together, part 11. We are together as a church in our series, and we're talking about money. We're talking about how the New Testament church used their money, what they did with it. We're looking at why they used their money in a certain way, how they used their money, and what does the Bible have to say about it. Now, before we open the Word of God, I've got to share with you a principle for understanding the Word of God. We have a tendency when we read the Bible to take our situation and superimpose it upon the Word of God. We cannot do that. We can do that, but we're not going to come away with the proper application. What we must do is seek to understand what happened back then. Look at it in its context. And then when we understand what happened back then, We look for the principle that it teaches. Then we take that principle and apply it to our situation. You will see how important that is in a few moments as we go through this study today. We're going to primarily be dealing with the Apostle Paul's counsel regarding giving. He is the most prolific writer of the New Testament, We will eventually double back and see what Jesus has to say, but we want to see what the actions of the church are regarding offerings. You hear about offerings every time you go to church. You probably sometimes are tired of hearing about offerings when you come to church. There are some people that are entirely turned off because of offerings when they come to church but offerings were a part of the church. What is important though is to understand what those offerings were, what those offerings were not, and why those offerings were given, and to whom were they given. And when we understand that and we see the undergirding principles that the church was standing on, then we can begin to make decisions regarding our offerings that are logical, practical, and godly. So let's look. We'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul wrote this letter. Actually, it's several letters, but they're added to be the first letter to the Corinthians. He wrote this while he was in Ephesus probably at the beginning of the year 56. And we read this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. When we read this passage, when we look at it through our eyes, we assume several things. One, it's a worship service of some kind, or it's done at their home to be brought to the worship service on another day and it is going to Jerusalem so it's going to the church headquarters in Jerusalem so these people <laughs> excuse me so these people are giving an offering to the church headquarters in Jerusalem so that the leaders of the church can distribute it among the needs of the work around the Mediterranean where the church was that's what we read into it That's not what it says. It says now concerning the collection for the saints. It's not a collection for the church. It is a collection for the saints. We will read in a few moments why. But let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians is written almost a year later. And we'll see that in the very passages we're going to read. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians. They had this message about setting aside this offering so it could be taken to Jerusalem for the saints. I'm going to um, take a Ricola. (laughs) So if you hear something bouncing around in my teeth, that's what it is. Paul had encouraged the church at Corinth to participate in this offering for the saints. A year later, they haven't done it. So he writes another letter to them, and part of that letter is to talk to them about giving to that offering. Now, we are going to spend some time in chapters 8 and chapters 9 of 2 Corinthians. Not today, but in the future, because there Paul gives the reasons why somebody should give. And that's important for us to note. Today, we're just looking at what this offering was for. Let's go to Second Corinthians 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. What was the offering for? Ministering to the saints. And Paul, one of his motivations, and we'll study it, is to compare one group with another. You might think that's not biblical. He did it. Anyways, we'll study it. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 10 and 11. And in this I give you, I give my advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began, and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion of what you have done. So they started out a year before to do this offering. They haven't done it. So Paul writes to them a year later, and he's saying, look, the churches of Macedonia did it, and uh, you need to do it as well. So you begun it, now let's work our way through it. We come to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, more clarification. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So Paul is saying, look, I know you want to minister to the saints. That's what this offering is for. And I've talked about your zeal to the Macedonians. Now the Macedonians did it, and now I'm talking to you about the Macedonians. He's interconnecting the experiences. The point for us is, who is this offering for? The ministering of the saints. Look at Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 24. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. Now this was written by the Apostle Paul in the year 57. It's about a year after he wrote 2 Corinthians. So you have 1 Corinthians at the beginning of 56, 2 Corinthians at the end of 56, Romans sometime in 57, each about a year apart. He's writing to them, He has plans. He wants to go to Spain. And when he does go to Spain, he'll swing by to Rome. He'll hang out with them for a while. Then he'll go on to Spain where he can preach the gospel. By the way, there's no scriptural or historical evidence that he ever got to Spain. Well, let's read on. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Paul is saying, I'm taking this money that was raised to the poor among the saints that are in Jerusalem. And he says why. The Gentiles who come into a knowledge of God And a Savior, Jesus Christ, owe that to the Jews. The church began in Jerusalem, and those people laid the foundation that ultimately became the opportunity for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. So they want to give an offering to those who are poor back in Jerusalem, the saints back in Jerusalem. Now, what's the background of that? Notice the year is 57. Now we're going to go backwards in time, a few years. We're going to go into the 40s. And uh, we're going to follow Paul in an experience that portrays what he went through and also what gave him the mindset so that when he writes about offerings, we understand what he is saying. So let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. talking about Paul. Now, he's named Saul here. His name later gets changed to Paul, and rather than confuse anybody, I will just read Paul whenever it says Saul, and whenever I talk about him, I will call him Paul. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Immediately. Immediately after what? Paul was there when Timothy was stoned. Paul agreed with Timothy being stoned. Stephen, excuse me, being stoned. Paul agreed with it and set out to persecute the church. Not satisfied with the work of persecution in Jerusalem, he sought and got permission from the government to go to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, to arrest them and put them in prison. So as he is traveling to Damascus, Jesus encounters him on the road He becomes a believer, and after he is baptized, immediately after that, he began to preach the Christ in the synagogues. Watch what happens. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelled in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So they want to kill him. But their plot became known to Paul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Where do you think he went? He went to Jerusalem. How do you think he was received? Not well. We read it the next verse. And when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. And you can understand their fear. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles, and they declared, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Paul is who we're referring to, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. Everywhere this guy is going now, somebody's out to kill him because he's preaching about Jesus. Folks, let me tell you something. The day may come when the world is like that again. More and more and more as we work our way down to the last days, we see that Christianity is being marginalized. That which is evil is being spoken of of that which is good. And that which is good is being spoken of Of that which is evil. Mark, mark this in your scriptures. Mark it in your mind. The day will come when it's going to be dangerous to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Before we leave this planet, those days are coming. So they attempted to kill him. Verse 30, When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So there's an attempt on Paul's life. The brethren, kindly or out of fear for their own lives, pack him up and send him away. He's gone. Now, that gives us the background for what happens next. We go to Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Paul. Why? Barnabas is living in a region called Antioch. And there there's so many things happening in the name of Jesus that he needs help. So he goes seeking after Paul, brings Paul to Antioch, and this is what gives us the foundation for understanding Paul's philosophy and theology of giving. Let's see verse 26. <clears throat> And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Paul is there for a year, he and Barnabas. In those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples each according to his ability determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. What was the offering for? Relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This happens in the 40s. We read about the offering in Corinthians and stuff that's in the 50s. Paul's pattern was, as he went out and worked among the Gentile churches to take an offering and send it back to Jerusalem for the church members who were suffering because of poverty. As you recall, in Acts 4, we've read how they gave everything they had away. So everybody had things in common. And then we read in Acts 8 that persecution broke out and they were scattered from their homes in Jerusalem. The Christians, the followers of Christ, who were living in Jerusalem or around there, were indeed having difficulty financially and the famine is part of the reason. Now, I studied this. There are four major famines that come through that part of the world over the next 10-15 years after Agabus had his prophecy. Josephus records it, and I can't remember the names of the Roman historians who, uh, who write about it, but it is well known that there was one particular famine that just really came down hard on Palestine. And it's during that time period that Paul is most motivated to help out the fellow believers who are suffering so much. Now, before we go on and make an application, I want to point out one particular verse. Please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14. We could read verses 1 through 14, but we'll get the point in verse 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In the 13 verses that precede that, Paul is talking about his call to the ministry. He will identify that it cost nobody anything. He paid his own way. Yet uh, Cephas, or Cephas, which is Peter, and others did not. Some even traveled with their wives. And he is saying it's not unscriptural, it's not unbiblical, it's not ungodly, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. He is saying that those full-time people, like Peter and others, they were paid. Somebody was paying them. Not Paul. Paul was a tent builder. He carried his own male, so to speak. He took care of it. Now, I mention that simply in contrast to all we've read thus far regarding everything he said about an offering. Everything we've read from Paul thus far is an offering not given to support the gospel ministry, but an offering to relieve Human suffering now that's extremely important let's look at this contextually after Paul would die it would be over hundred years before there was a church building there never were church buildings in his day the Apostle John would be dead and gone before there was a church building he lived nearly to the year 100 They did not take up offerings to pay for brick and mortar. They didn't have it. Doesn't mean they wouldn't have. But we're trying to understand what happened, learn the principle, then apply it to us. The New Testament church was not a structure organized with levels of leadership represented by regions of the world. The New Testament church was a confederation of believers led by the Holy Spirit. The early church, or each church that Paul started and others appointed elders and were functioning independently of other churches. Today we would call them congregational churches. Each one independent of the other though somewhat interdependent because of their connection through Christ. And some of you are thinking, "But wait a minute pastor, Acts chapter 15, they all gathered together in Jerusalem to discuss an issue. The issue is how Jewish do the Gentiles have to become in order to be saved? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the laws of Moses? And all those types of things. They discuss it, they vote, and a letter goes out. And from that it is implied in many people's thinking that that's demonstrating church organization and church structure. To some degree it is, but note this, rather than centralizing things it was an act to decentralize things. It was Jewish Judaizers going out from Jerusalem trying to get people to conform to the church in Jerusalem that they acted against and said, you don't have to listen to them. They do not represent anything. You keep yourselves pure, keep yourselves from strangled uh, meat and um, a few other things, and you're good. You see, that was not a pronouncement from on high saying everybody's going to be on board with the same. That was a pronouncement on high saying you don't have to listen to them. All you got to do is a few simple things. When we read the Scriptures, we have a tendency to take what is today and superimpose it upon what was. The followers... Of Christ in the New Testament gave money because of three reasons. One, they believed in the cause. Two, they trusted the leadership. And three, they believed there was some type of accountability. It was safe. In other words, they wanted their money to make a difference. They weren't throwing it away. They wanted their money to make a difference. And what was the undergirding? What was the principle that held that up? What was the determinant? It was the relief of human suffering. The relief of human suffering is why they gave an offering. Folks, if you want to be biblical, if you want to be a New Testament giver, then every dollar you give should in some way, somehow, represent the relieving of human suffering. Now you may be wondering, well, I want to give to the church budget. I want you to. Trust me. I want you to. But don't give a dime to the church budget if we cannot demonstrate to you that the purpose this church exists is to relieve human suffering. Don't give a dime. Don't entrust us with that. We don't deserve it. Pray about it. Find a cause that does and use your money that way. But I will tell you this church is relieving human suffering. You saw two beautiful ladies baptized today. Do you think that relieves human suffering? I tell you it does. Jesus is the answer to relieving human suffering. And when people assemble up here and hear about Him, that is money well spent. When people's lives are changed, that is money well spent. When people come up here and they hear how to be a better parent, how to be a better husband or a better wife, and their families are strengthened. That is relieving human suffering. When people come here and they actually have physical needs they can't take care of, and there's a group of men and women who go out and relieve them of that, they do work for them. That is relieving human suffering. Folks, This building is beautiful. $24,000 a month, beautiful. But it's worthless in the cause of God if we're not here to relieve human suffering. There have been times I've dreamt, oh God, What would it be like to not have a mortgage? What what would it be like to not have a congregation? Do you know, a lot of energy, a lot of resources go into having a building and having a congregation. But it comes back to this. Comes back to this every time. I mean, I just kind of love to get out there like a jet fighter instead of a big cargo plane, you know, just swooping in and out, but no, together, gathered together, praying together, supporting one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, giving hope to each other, drying tears, holding hands, walking through life together, folks, that is relieving human suffering. That's why we're here. And so, when you are giving an offering, I want to tell you again, and I don't think you'll ever hear another pastor say this, do not give a dime to this church or any church unless you're convinced it is going to go to help to relieve human suffering and if you can say yes it will then folks don't just give a dime give from your heart those people that are suffering could be you except for the grace of God if you happen to be up right now, there are people that are down. Give. If you happen to be down and you don't see your way around, give the dime. Give something. Give to the relief of human suffering, and you will discover a closer walk with God than you ever dreamt possible, because that is at the very heart of God. Jesus became poor to enrich us. Jesus left heaven and came to a famine-stricken world filled with sin, filled with human misery. Why? To relieve human suffering. He changes hearts. He gives hope, hope for now, hope for the future. And on Calvary, Jesus gave everything. And the Gentile believers' hearts were changed. And they wanted to give. The source of their giving was the relief of human suffering. So I wonder is there anyone here, anyone who would like to say to God, I want to pray about relieving human suffering? Give me wisdom to know how to use my resources to relieve human suffering. If you would like to pray that prayer to the Lord, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we need to be so close to you. We don't understand these things. And the amount of suffering and pain in this world is so big, we feel like we can't do anything. Help us with our dollars, with our tens of dollars, with our thousands of dollars, whatever it is, a dime, let us, by your grace, Lord, understand where we can give it to relieve human suffering. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.